can tell, there's 35 recorded miracles in the four gospel writers. One gospel, four writers. Some of those miracles were recorded in all three or four of the writers. Some only in two of the writers. And it's not that they were different miracles. Don't confuse them. It's just they're expressing from their vantage point, their viewpoint, what they see, how that they've seen it. Uh, I gave this example not long ago. It would be like four of us going out here on the intersection, each one standing on a different corner on the street, and there would be an automobile accident. Same accident, but each one of us would see that accident from our vantage point. So therefore, we're able to say something different about it that maybe the other person didn't see. It's not that it's contradicting each other. It's just it's from where your vantage point is at. Now, when you study the miracles, we realize that if all the miracles that the Lord Jesus performed while He was here and all the miracles that He's ever performed were to be written down, the world could not contain the books that would be written about it. But yet, when we look at these miracles, there's a few things that we need to notice. We need to ask ourselves, when did it happen? Where did it happen? And why did it happen? Because there's not only a physical need that's met, there's a spiritual application. And sometimes we'll overlook what he's doing spiritually, which is what causes the miracle to really go with us in days and years to come. That's why so many people, they say, oh, God gave me a miracle, but forget all about it. Within a few days, it's because you never got the spiritual application to what he was doing. So it's important that you see this because this miracle, for whatever reason, it's not preached on much, and it's not because people are afraid of it or that it's different or that it's hard to understand. I think the main reason is because it's only recorded by one of the writers of the gospel. It's in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Turn there if you will. Luke chapter 13. Let's begin with about the 10th verse because this will tell us where he was and when this miracle occurred. It's important that you catch this because if you don't get this, you're going to miss, uh, I feel, one of the greatest points of the whole message that we have to share with you tonight. The Bible says, and when he, referring to Jesus, Luke 13, 10, and he was, teach, was in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So here's where he's at. He's in the synagogue, and it's the Sabbath day. So we know where he was, we know when it was. That's important. Where was he? At the synagogue. When was it? The Sabbath. That's important that you get that. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years and bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. That meant to get to church, somebody had to take her. To get anywhere, somebody had to take her. She was what I'm sure many folks feel like in life. She felt like she was a burden to somebody else. She had a spirit of infirmity. Now, let me pull this whole separate message, but I've got to tell you this. She wasn't sick. The spirit was sick. The spirit had the infirmity. 
See, we don't, we don't talk much about evil spirits today. We don't like talking about But really, an evil spirit cannot function properly without a body to animate what the characteristic of that spirit is. For example, a spirit of greed means nothing without a hand to steal the money. A spirit of murder can't fulfill the desire that that spirit has, the characteristic without somebody having a knife or a gun, a body to fulfill the desire of that. That's why spirits seek to possess and to oppress a body so that they can get the animation that they really desire out of that individual. That's why people say, I don't know why I'm doing that. You're not doing it. You're acting out what the influence maybe of that evil spirit is. So here was a woman that I'm sure she went everywhere. They couldn't help her. They couldn't cure her. You know why? You can't take a pill to get rid of a spirit of infirmity. You can't take a treatment to get rid of a spirit of infirmity. Her problem was not a physical problem merely. It was a spiritual problem as well. This spirit of infirmity was within her, binding her, holding her, preventing her from being free. verse 12 and when Jesus saw her he called her to him and said unto her woman thou art loosed from thine infirmity and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God hey you'd think if it took her 18 years to get in this shape It would have taken her 18 years to get out of it. But can I remind you what it takes the devil years to bring on us, the Lord can fix in a moment of time. One prayer, glory to God. One prayer can change it all. Immediately, not 18 years later, not 18 months later, when he laid his hands on her, immediately she was healed. I'm not even in the sermon yet, and I'm ready to preach. And the ruler of the synagogue, now you think everybody would be thrilled for this one, but the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed when? On the Sabbath day. And said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to water? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound low these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for the glorious things that were done by Him. Well, i got a whole lot of preaching to do and a little bit of time to do it in. But I think if you'll listen close, God several months ago started dealing with my heart. And the more I looked at this and prayed at this and thought about it, God gave me just a simple, a simple outline to what takes place in this miracle that I want to call your attention to. First of all, I couldn't help but notice her commitment. Not her commitment to be healed, 
her commitment for 18 years when nothing was happening. Her commitment to fellowship with others. Where did the miracle happen? Church. That was her form of church. To the Jew, the synagogue was the extension, the teaching place. Everything that happened great and mighty always occurred in the temple, but it happened because through the synagogue, the local gathering, where they came together to instruct and teach the Word of God, she had a commitment to come to church. Now, anybody had an excuse not to come. She had an excuse not to come. She could in no wise lift herself up. It was quite a task for her to get to church. By the way, I look back this aisle tonight and I see one in a wheelchair. I see another with a walker. I see another with a walker. I'd say it took a little bit of effort to get here tonight. They're not here just because they thought that they would come and spend some time and just let the time pass by. It took some commitment to get here. And here was a woman that was committed to the fellowship, committed to the Father in heaven. She knew that God wanted her to know His Word, so she came faithfully. It was still it was still a driving force within her that she knew she had to be in church, and she kept going. Her commitment to her faith. Now this next part doesn't set very well, but I want you to bear in mind what I'm about to tell you. You have to grasp biblical history for just a moment to understand. She went to church for 18 years to a place where nothing was happening. She was a Jew. And the Jews' ultimate place of the glory of God to be found was in the temple. Between the Old Testament and New Testament, there's 400 years of darkness. Not an open vision, not a prophet heard from. There was no news from heaven. And what was worse, inside the temple, it was divided by the outer court, the inner court, and in the inner court, it was divided with a place, a special place called the holiest of holies. Behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And there the high priest would administer the sacrifice of the blood. And when the blood was accepted, the glory of God would fill that place and fill the temple of God. But now there is no Ark of the Covenant. Behind the veil there is nothing but an empty room. Do you hear what I'm telling you? She was going to a church that was empty, that no longer had the glory of God in it. For 18 years nothing had happened. Nobody had prayed for her. Nobody had told her that the Lord could do something for her. But she kept going back and going back and going back. And she said to herself, I'm sure, when folks would say, why do you keep going to a place where nothing's happening? I'm sure she'd say, because this could be the day. Maybe maybe today the glory of God will come. Maybe today the Messiah will come. Maybe today I can get my healing. Maybe today God will answer my prayer. Maybe today it'll be the day that I'll be changed and healed of this horrible disease. And I don't want to miss it. Commitment. How many times, how many times 
have people come for 17 years and 50 weeks and miss it by two weeks. What if she hadn't been at church that day? <laughs> what if she hadn't been where God wanted her to be? You're not hearing what I'm telling you. If you're here in need of something tonight, you're not here by accident. It's mere faith that has driven you to this place. Looking for something not from me, but something from God. And I've got good news for you. I've come all the way from Ohio to tell you this could be your day. This could be the time that God changes everything, lifts the burden, answers your prayer, and honors your commitment. Too late to tell me that he doesn't honor commitment. My wife's father went to heaven on our wedding anniversary. On our wedding anniversary, I was preaching in a camp meeting service. I left at the end of service after I finished preaching and the invitation. Some of them were getting together and I told Brian, I said, i got to go. And I left. That evening they called me and said, my father-in-law would go to the hospital. But he had stabilized so I was there in the service preaching. I had this sense of urgency to get home. I thought at first, well, maybe it's just me. Maybe uh, being my anniversary, if I drive just barely at the speed limit, I'll get home by midnight. I didn't get down the road 20 minutes until they called. They said, uh, he has passed. He's gone on to be with the Lord. We went to their house there, and he, he suffered terribly. I mean, it, I, I'm not going to exaggerate in any way, but this is in all honesty. He couldn't sit anywhere past two or three minutes. He couldn't lay down because he would smother. He couldn't take his dialysis. His heart had failed him. He had can three cancer surgeries at one time. He had a physical problem that wouldn't let him sit all the way back in a chair. He had to sit on the edge of a chair. He would get up and sit down, get up and sit down. The night before he went in the hospital, his name was John. The night before he went in the hospital, he was up and down all night long. My mother-in-law said, what, the, what are you doing? He said, I made my mind up. He said, I, I've already talked to cow and candy. said, and I've told them my wife's brothers are not Christians. said, I told them I want you to pray God either heal me or take me home to heaven. She said, well, yeah, I know that, but what are you doing? He said, I'm in there studying. Because <laughs> if he heals me, I'm going to preach. He preached for all those years just because he got down didn't mean to preach it left him. He was still committed to it. After that he passed, we went there to their house. And my mother-in-law told me, said he was working on a sermon. And I said, where, where was he working on his message at? She said, in his study. We walked into his study. And Betty, he had his old Bible open there. And there was a red ink pen lying across the top of it. And it was turned to the book of Revelation. And I noticed something underlined in red. And I went over and looked at it. Remember now, his name was John. And what he'd underlined was this. And I, John, 
saw the holy city coming down. I'm about to have a fit tonight. I'm telling you, God will honor your commitment. The devil may say that he won't, but God will always honor your commitment. The commitment. Then her call. The Bible says that he saw her. The Bible doesn't just pin words to take up space. For them to say that he saw her is to imply that nobody else did. Boy, we could take a recess for a half hour and shout it out right there. Thank God when nobody else sees us, He sees us. When the whole world overlooks us, He sees us. In a time of trouble, He sees us. On the mountain of blessings, He sees us. When we're in His glory, He sees us. When we're distressed, He sees us. When we're good, He sees us. And when we're bad, He sees us. When we're sick, He sees us. And when we're well, He sees us. Thank God to everybody else that they look at us. We're just a number. But when He looks at us, He sees us. He says, I know you. I created you. I sustain you. I knew you when you were in the womb and foreordained you for the purpose that I've set aside in your life. God says, I see you. He saw her. Then he called her to himself. You didn't get it, did you? She could in no wise lift herself up. He called her to himself. That meant he went so far and he stopped and he said, Come here. She couldn't get to where he was. But he said, Come to me. He went so far, but then he stopped. See, there's the problem. Some of you think he's going to intrude in your life, but he'll never do that. He'll come so far, and then he'll stop, and he'll say, Now you come to me. You weary? You heavy laden? Come to me. He'll go so far, and then he'll stop. She wasn't able. I had to correct years of preaching. I've been preaching 37 years. I had to correct years of preaching when I came to this text. Because I used to tell people all the time, He'll never ask you to do something that you're not able to do. But He just did. (laughs) He asked her to do something that she wasn't able to do. uh, I'm, I'm reminded I went down to Monclo, West Virginia. Monclo was a little mining town. All the houses in the coal camps tore down now. My dad had died that week. We didn't even have his funeral yet. And I was off preaching. I remember my mother said, you keep that appointment. They were bringing dad's body up from Florida for the viewing and the funeral. I went down to Monclo and when I got there, Nobody tell the fire marshal, okay? They didn't have an owl down the middle. The people had filled it up. They were standing around the walls, and they were in the foyer. 
The pastor told me, he said, you'll have to come through the side door over here to get in. I went in and I didn't have a place to sit. Dear old feeble saint got up and said, you can have my chair. I said, I'll stand. <laughs> I'm going to be preaching anyway. You just stay seated. I preached that night. And all of a sudden, from the foyer coming this way, I hear shouts. Uncontrolled. You all do believe in shouting, don't you? If you don't believe in shouting, you're going to be in a mess of trouble, you next door to me in heaven. They started shouting, and, and I, I had no idea what was going on. There was no owl. But I kept noticing people. They'd step aside. When they'd step aside, oh, they'd get in the glory. Start shouting. And I looked, and there he was. A fella back in the back had no legs. He'd lost both legs in a mining accident. The man had come to the meeting and couldn't get in because of his wheelchair getting through the crowd. And the people back in the back told me later, said, when the invitation was given, we heard a thump. And we looked, and there he come, walking on his hands. And I started back, tears in his eyes, and he said, I've got to get to Jesus. A man with no legs, trying to get to Jesus? How can he do that? Because the Lord had called him. He not only saw her and called her, but he spoke to her. Woman, thou art loosed. That tells her two things. Number one, he saw in her what she could not see in herself. He told her that because she could not see that she was already loosed. And then it also implies that he said something to her that she did not know. I don't know how it was when the Lord called you, but when He called me, He saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. And He told me something about me that I didn't know about myself. Here you are tonight, you're saying, oh, I know everything about myself. You don't know what He knows about you. He knows more about you than you know about you. He knows more about all of us than we know about ourselves. Why, He even knows the very number of the hairs on your head. doesn't say that He counts them. He numbers them. If one falls out, He'll say that's 1,113. He's got every one of them numbered. You don't know yourself. You think you know yourself. You say, I know myself. No, you don't. How many of you, you did things you said you'd never do? Thought you knew yourself, but you did it anyway. Some of you said, I'll never put, I'll never put a bottle of liquor to my lips, but you did it, didn't you? Some of you said, I'll never lie like that, but you did it. Some of you lived in a household that was filled with drugs and violence. You say, I'll never be like that, but you did it, didn't you? See, He knows you. He knows me. He knows everything about us, but He still speaks. Uh, some of you, if you knew things about other people, you'd never speak to them again. But He says, I don't care what you've done. I know it all. I've seen it all. And I'll still call you by name and speak to you and tell you how much I love you. Her commitment, her call, then came her cure. 
Her cure came in three ways. First of all, the Bible says through contact. He laid his hands on her. He touched her. Has he ever touched you? Anybody that's ever preached, you know what it is when the Lord touches you. Anybody ever sung, you know what it is when the Lord touches you. You can sing, you can sing a hundred songs, but then comes the one that He touches you on. Some of you have heard a thousand messages, but one point of one sermon, He used it to touch you. Some of you have heard a thousand testimonies, but one sentence in one testimony, He touched you. He touched her. Contact. You better have contact with Him. Second of all, not only came contact, but the Bible says there came change. She straightened up. <laughs> I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what He said. She was made straight. Hey, I've got all oh, glory to God. If He really touches you, you'll straighten up. Nobody will have to tell you to straighten up. You'll straighten up. Nobody will have to tell you get straight and live right. You'll just do it. When He touches you, He'll change you. You can rest assured. Not only is there contact, but there's change. And then there was celebration. She glorified God. <laughs> I get so sick and tired of these people. They, they, go, they go to all extremities in our area. Well, you, you know, we had one person, they, they said, don't you go out to those people's church. They're stupid. They're crazy. They run the aisle. They shout. One fellow one time said, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus ever jumped and hollered and shouted like that. And I think of the of dear old Maze Jackson used to say all the time, it might not say that Jesus did that, but everybody he touched did. Don't you make fun of me for glorifying God. And you better be careful who you make fun of for the way they worship God. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you better listen to what I'm saying. I remember one time I was in a service, and some of you, you might not like what I'm going to say, but there's no other way to put it except the way that it was. And this old fellow, he got blessed. They'd taken the offering, Joplin, and they had a communion table down front. For some reason in that church, they set the offering on that communion table. This old fellow got blessed, and he come and dumped that offering out of one of those plates on that table, put that offering plate on his head, grabbed the Christian flag, and started going around the church singing, Onward, Christian soldiers. I was going home that night and I told my wife, I said, you know, that was about the funniest thing I ever saw in my life. I didn't, I wasn't making fun of him. I'm just saying it just tickled me to watch him in the glory. But all of a sudden there was a check in my heart and spirit and there was a small still voice that said, you make sure you don't make fun of him because a few years ago he made fun of someone else that did that and you saw what he did tonight. You better be careful who you make fun of. You better be careful who you mock because you may be worse than they ever thought about being when the Lord touches your heart. Never tell God never. She was having a time. Now, you'd have thought everybody would have been happy and thrilled. But the final point of the message, 
Then came the criticism. The ruler of the synagogue, just one, started with just one. The ruler of the synagogue, the Bible says, was filled with indignation. You know what that means? He got mad. Furious. Would somebody help me understand why does the world get so angry at us for loving Jesus and praising Him? Why does the world hate us so much for that? But when change really comes, you bear in mind, when you really start doing what God intended us to do, this woman just started doing what God put her on this earth to do. She was praising Jesus. Thanking Jesus for what he'd done. And when she started thanking Jesus for what he'd done, then they started criticizing her. Now, I don't, I don't want to leave a negative tone on this, but I think you have to have a cruel dose of reality every now and then. If you're ever going to do anything for the Lord, you better be prepared for criticism. And if you can't stand criticism, you won't go very far in this thing because you will be criticized. And what is worse, most people think that if they serve the Lord, everybody's going to be happy about it. They're not going to be happy about it. If you don't want criticism, there's a few ways I'll guarantee you won't be criticized. Do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. Nobody ever criticizes the people that do nothing. The ones that get criticized are the ones that do something. See, if your church doesn't grow, if you don't touch the community, if you don't see people saved, if you don't impact your community, I promise you, they'll never say a word about you. But as soon as you start doing something for God, the critics will come out. What's worse? The worst criticism of all is religious criticism. This came from the ruler of the synagogue. (laughs) I want to tell you something. I'd rather I'd rather meet a gang empty handed in a back alley and fight my way out of it as to have to fight a religious critic. They are the meanest, nastiest people in the world. People that have religion and don't have salvation that start criticizing. Because, you're, you, just give me five more minutes, will you? Get the picture. Here is a religious ruler telling the Word made flesh what the Word means. He wrote the book. You're telling, you're telling Jesus what His Word says? Here He is criticizing the very one. He knew the letter of the law. He didn't know the spirit of the law. And the letter of the law killeth. The spirit of the law giveth life. He says, don't you know? You have six days to work. Be healed on those days. Let's get this right. First of all, 
I cannot hardly tolerate one-verse Christians that that's all they've got, one verse they memorize and beat everybody over the head with it. I am preaching right now. You can jump in and say amen anytime you want to. They take one verse and beat them up and beat them up and beat them up. Here they thought they were fulfilling the law. Look right here. You go home. You search your Bible. You search Jewish history. There was no law in God's Word that said you could not heal on the Sabbath. It never existed. That was man-made ideology. That was a man-made philosophy. And his second problem was he quoted the law that did not exist, that man had made. The second problem was he said, you have six days to work. Be healed. See, that's his problem. He thought, he thought Jesus had to work to heal this woman. Telling you tonight, He can lift your burden, break the shackles, set you free, and never break a sweat. It was no work for Him. He could speak and the world was. He just had to say it. He just had to think it. No work for Him. That's our problem. We try to make Him like us. But His ways are so far beyond our ways. His thoughts are so high above our thoughts. We can't understand them. We turn it around. See, He can't lie. And He can't die. That's why He said, As I liveth, thus saith the Lord. See, that's a precious thought. Can I give you an example? Here, here's a chair over here. Everybody see that chair? That chair is a blue chair. Right or wrong? Wow, I declare it's a blue chair. I said it's a blue chair. Every one of you is wrong. It's a blue chair. Right or wrong? That'd be a lie. But Jesus, the Lord says, that's a blue chair. Guess what? It's a blue chair. It becomes a blue chair. What He says will happen. That's the difference between you and I. We think it and nothing happens. We say it and nothing happens. But what He says always comes to pass. His ways are higher than our ways. It wasn't any work for him. So here comes not only the way they criticize, but why they criticize. Why do people criticize the Christian? Why do people criticize spirituality in the day we live in? Why do people criticize worship and praise? Why do people criticize churches that are growing? Why do they do that? Why would they do that? Number one, they were exposed. They had 18 years and did nothing for him. But when he spoke, 
everything changed. When He touched her, everything changed. See, He always exposes us for who we are. His success reveals our failures. His light reveals our darkness. His power reveals our weakness. They were exposed. When you get to the place that you really start believing God for who He is and what He can do, and and the Lord starts doing things through your life and in your community, then it will anger others around because they're exposed. They're saying it can't be done. The day of revival is over. Nobody wants to be saved. Nobody wants to come to church. Then suddenly you start seeing people saved and your church starts growing and things are happening and prayers are answered and miracles are there. The next thing you know, they are exposed. Exposed for their weakness. Not only were they exposed, but they were envious. He was a threat to their position and power. He did what they could not do. Therefore, he could take from them what they held the most valuable, their glory. They didn't want him to be praised. They wanted to be praised. They didn't want him to get attention. They wanted the attention. They didn't want him to be supreme. They wanted to be supreme. Nobody could question their authority. Right, wrong, or indifferent. And then also, they were enemies. They really weren't angry at this woman. They took out on this woman the fact that she praised Jesus. Their anger was toward Jesus. She was caught in the middle of a spiritual war. Sometimes you'll find yourself caught in the middle of a spiritual war. I remember one time a couple came to me said, we need counseling. They sat down. They were fighting. Oh, it was awful. Yelling, screaming at one another. By the end of the counseling session, they were hugging each other, kissing, going out the door, and they blamed me for all their trouble. I was caught in the middle of their war. It happens. Adam and Eve were caught in the middle of the war between Satan and the Lord. They were victims, casualties of the conflict that brought sin on the human race. You're caught in the middle tonight. There is a war that's raging. In the heavenlies, there's a war that's raging over your soul. On one hand, you have the love of God and the gentleness of Jesus and the power of the blood of Christ. On the other hand, the devil will do all he can to try to convince you, don't follow him. It's not worth it. Don't do it. Caught in the middle. Here's the point. Now, what do you say to your critics? I wish I could tell you how many critics I've got. I wish I could tell you the awful things they have said. I wish I could tell you the lies they have told. But I wouldn't do the honor and privilege of even recognizing them tonight. They're not worth that. <laughs> no, no. You listen to, listen to what I'm telling you. Not one time did the woman answer her critics. She just kept glorifying God. (laughs) She kept 
praising God. And pretty soon, people around us kept praising God. And before long, Jesus answered the critics and said, Thou hypocrite, you treat your animals better than you treat this woman. How can it be wrong for me to do this for this woman when you'll take your donkey, your ox out, and give it water on the Sabbath, and you're saying it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath? And they were ashamed. Let me tell you something. If you'll keep your mouth shut to your critics and let Jesus answer your critics and you keep praising God, pretty soon they'll be ashamed of themselves and the Lord will bring the truth out and the Lord will take care of all of them. But if you get hung up on the critics, you stay there and you'll get caught up in that and it'll rob you of the very reason that He has done what He has done and that is so you will glorify Him and praise Him for all that He has done. Let your critics go. Compassion has no limits. And kindness has no enemies. Let your critics go. Who do you serve? Your critics or Christ? Critics were there. See, here's what Jesus says. If you come to me, my friends are your friends, but also my enemies become your enemies. That's the word. They don't hate you because you're you. They hate you because of Him. I can prove that to you. You could pray anywhere you want to in public. You could pray until you say in Jesus' name. Then you're in trouble. But what you all do is just go ahead and say, you know what? The world never did anything for me. And the devil couldn't help me. But one day I heard a voice. And he said, I see you. And he called me. And he spoke to me. He said, I love you and I died for your sins. And I've come to set you free. He touched me. And when he touched me, he changed me. And I'm not the same person that I used to be. Thank God for the change. What a change. I wish I had time to tell you the way I've seen him change lives. Somebody here a while back said, don't go out there to that church. You go out there to that church with all those people. Why? You don't want to go out there. They all drive nice cars. (laughs) Maybe they do now. (laughs) You know what? Someone said to a fellow one time, said, you know something? You come to the Lord... There's no power in the Lord. So just like you believe them miracles all the time. Looked to the old fellow and said, Do you really believe that Jesus changed water into wine? He said, Yeah, I believe that. They said, You weren't there. You can't prove that. He said, Well, I can't prove that. But I know one thing. He changed wine and liquor into car payments and house payments. You hear what I'm saying to you? I'm telling you, there's a change when Jesus comes in. He makes a bad person good and a good person better. There will be a change when Jesus comes into your heart. And when He changes you, how can you do any less than stop every now and then and say, Lord, I just have to pause and tell you, 
Thank you so much that I don't have to go to hell. Thank you that my sins are forgiven. And Lord, we don't rejoice that the demons are subject. And us, we rejoice that our names have been written down in the Lamb's book of life. We rejoice because we have been changed and we're not the person that we used to be. Fella, come to hear a young man preach in our church a few days ago, his first message. A guy called me aside and he said, you don't know what a change this is. He said, there's not been a bar in this town but that boy hadn't fallen in it. That he'd fight, fight and fight. He rode with me to a revival. He teared up and he said, Preacher, I'm so glad my little kids will never know the man that I was. There is a change. I'm about to have a spell tonight. There is a change when Jesus comes here. You're not. There'll be a change. Do you need a change tonight? Things need to change at your house. The things need to change on your job. The things need to change in your street. The things need to change in your heart.